0: Friends, this evening I want to take a little detour from our regular preaching series and think carefully about a topic that I'm sure that many of you have been thinking about ever since we began this series on 1 Corinthians. And I believe that we have reached a point in this letter where we must allow not just the letter of 1 Corinthians, but the whole counsel of God to instruct us about the miraculous sign gifts and the revelatory gifts that were operative at the church in Corinth. I think it's important for us to think about this before we consider the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so this is what we'll do as we consider the subject of cessationism. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord for humble and receptive hearts as we look to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours, and your thoughts higher than ours. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, and your faithfulness to the clouds. Help us now to glory in our Savior, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily and through whom we have been reconciled to you by the blood of his cross. May we come to know the immeasurable greatness of your power that you work in us by your spirit as we dwell and trust in the riches of your saving and sanctifying word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, every theological position has the potential to be misunderstood. On one level, this should not take us by surprise. It should not take us by surprise because of another theological position or doctrine that we believe. That doctrine is the doctrine of sin. We believe, as evangelicals, that we are sinners. And we believe that. Because there are numerous texts in the Bible that tell us so. Sin has affected our mental faculties as well as our hearts. We can make errors in logic and reasoning because of the effect of sin on our minds. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin. And that is one of the reasons why Christians, even within evangelical Christianity, can have differing positions on For example, baptism. Should we baptize only believers? Or should we baptize both believers and their children? The effects of sin and inadequate study can cloud the way we think about this issue. But as you know, we will not have this problem in heaven. When sin and its effects will be no more, we will no longer be confused because we will all be Baptists. But think about this. Think with me. Why should we believe what the Bible tells us about sin and its effects? Well, we ought to believe what the Bible tells us about sin and its effects because of another doctrine, the doctrine of inspiration. There are numerous texts in the Bible that teach us that the Bible is the Word of God Himself. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete. In other words, thoroughly fitted, equipped for every good work. That's Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So this then allows us to say that because the Bible is the Word of God, the Bible is our highest authority, and that it is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice, for doctrine and life. And if this is the case, then we must circle back to where we began, and then say, well, in order to correct any misunderstanding, we must allow the weight of all of Scripture weigh on one or any particular passage. So what is cessationism and why does this matter? Well within Christianity there are essentially two camps, although there might be slight variations within each camp, but essentially two camps when it comes to viewing the extraordinary spiritual gifts of the Spirit. Both groups believe that the ordinary gifts of the Spirit continue like the gifts of helping and administration and service and exhortation and generosity and leading and showing mercy. Both groups believe that the list in 1 Corinthians 12 is not exhaustive, but a representative list, a sampling, if you may. The difference is what we believe about the extraordinary gifts. Well, the first position is called cessationism which is an understanding that certain spiritual gifts, namely the sign gifts, healings and miracles, and the revelatory gifts, tongues and prophecy, were unique to the apostolic age and ceased with the death of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament writings. That is with the completion of the canon of Scripture. Certain gifts have ceased. Hence the name cessationism. And the person who holds to this theological position is called a cessationist. This is the position I believe is faithful to the whole counsel of God. The other position is called continuationism. And from that name you can gather that they believe that those sign gifts, healing and miracles and the revelatory gifts, tongues and prophecy, have not ceased. But continue they are for the church even today now why is this important well it's important because if they continue and are operative today then they should be prayed for and practiced in the congregation for the building up of the church for the common good now having said that I want to tell you what cessationism does not mean so here's three things that it does not mean number one Cessationism does not mean that we do not believe in the Holy Spirit, as some would say. And friends, that's just absurd. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a Christian, let alone think like a Christian. We need the Spirit of Christ in order to continue believing in the gospel, to overcome sin and temptation, to obey Christ's commands, to grow in maturity, to minister to one another, and to endure till the very end. Here's the second thing cessationism does not mean. Cessationism does not mean that cessationists are opposed to all things supernatural. This also is not true. We believe in the supernatural because we believe in the triune God who does supernatural things. We believe in the miraculous. We believe in the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection of Christ. We believe in the resurrection from the dead. We also believe that the greatest miracle of all is when someone is born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Someone who is dead in their sins and blind to the things of God is made spiritually alive by the resurrection power of Jesus. We believe that this is an ongoing work of the Spirit. We exist as a church to see this happen. To preach the gospel so that non-Christians would hear the truth and have their hearts of stone miraculously changed to hearts of flesh by an act of divine power. But even as I tell you this, I want to clarify what I mean by a miracle or the miraculous. You see, different people mean different things when they say miracle. You know, sometimes parents will walk into their kids' rooms and find out that they've cleaned it, and they'll say, oh, it's a miracle. That's not what I mean by a miracle. Or when a baby is born, someone might say, what a miracle. That's not what I mean by miracle. Now, if it's a virgin birth, well, that's a miracle. If I were to get a call from the ruler's office saying, Pastor, we've decided to give you land, that's an answer to prayer. That's not a miracle. Jesus rising from the dead with a new resurrection body, now that's a miracle. When God causes seasons to change, from summer to winter, springtime and harvest, that's not a miracle. When he parts the Red Sea into, that's a miracle. So here's a definition. When God acts in our world, when he intervenes in extraordinary ways and unexpected ways other than his usual ordinary providential activity. I'll say that again. When God acts in our, in our world, when he intervenes in extraordinary and unexpected ways other than his usual or ordinary providential activity, that's a miracle. And that's why the Bible uses this phrase, signs and wonders. To describe the miracle, the miraculous. A good text to understand what this means is Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, if you are who you say you are, and if it is the truth that God spoke to you, prove it. Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Stuff like that does not happen every day. When a non living thing changes to a living thing. If you drop your phone and the screen cracks, well, you expect that. If you drop it down and it turns into a puppy, that's a miracle. Number three, here is another thing that cessationism does not mean. Cessationism does not mean that God does not heal people today. No, God can and still does heal people today in answer to prayer. He does so through ordinary means like medical treatments. But he also does so in unexplainable ways. Friends, there are many times when Christians have been healed of incurable diseases like cancer. Physicians call these phenomena spontaneous remissions. In other words, they have no natural explanation. God still does heal. That is His divine prerogative. On Friday, your elders visited Nadine in the hospital, and we prayed, among many other things, that God would heal her. And I have no doubt in my mind that He could do that if He wanted glory in that way. But he also gets glory through our suffering, doesn't he? No, God can heal, and God does heal people. What cessationism argues for is that the spiritual gifts of miracles and the spiritual gifts of healings have ceased. There are no healers or miracle workers today. So what I want to do now is to lay out for you five biblical and theological reasons for cessationism. I don't intend to deal with every single question or objection, just the most important ones. And for more reading, I would refer you to the books that we've made available for you uh, at the book table at the back. I believe those books are the finest available on the subject, so do take advantage of those books. Uh, You can pay as much as you can, uh, as much as you can afford. Uh, Read them with an open Bible by your side, and grow in your knowledge of Christ. So here's the first reason Why you ought to believe that these gifts have ceased. Number one, the purpose of miracles is to attest God's messengers who deliver God's revelation. The purpose of miracles is to attest God's messengers who deliver God's revelation. That is, they attest the authenticity of those who bring God's word, His divine revelation. So let's begin with Jesus. So, turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. And this is how Peter describes Jesus at Pentecost. He stands up and he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. How? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, it's true that Jesus had compassion on people, and he healed the sick and cast out demons. But what he performed were the signs of the Messiah. Signs that Isaiah said that the Messiah would do. And so when John the Baptist had questions about the identity of Jesus, he pointed John to those signs, didn't he? Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 5. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. He points John to those signs. When the writer to the Hebrews speaks of God's revelation of the gospel message, this is what he says in Hebrews 2, verses 3 to 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. God bore witness. Friends, this is what a sign does. It points to something. It has a purpose. God is not interested in doing miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. No, miracles in the Bible were not done for the sake of entertainment, but to bear witness to the truthfulness of God's word as declared by his messengers. Now, if you carefully look through the scriptures, you will find that miracles did not take place all the time. Instead, you will see that miracles tend to mostly occur during three periods of time in redemptive history. Three periods of time. They happened during the time of Moses and Joshua, during the times of Elijah and Elisha, and then Jesus and the apostles. Amazing things happened during these periods of time at the hands of these uniquely gifted messengers. Now, this does not mean that they did not happen at other times. Scripture does record these other incidents, but when they do, they always bear witness to the one true God And the truthfulness of his word proclaimed through his chosen prophets or messengers. Listen to what B.B. Warfield says. Warfield wrote, Miracles do not appear on the page of scripture vagrantly, here, there, and elsewhere, indifferently, without assignable reason. No, they belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to his people through accredited messengers. Declaring his gracious purposes, their abundant display in the apostolic church is the mark of the richness of the apostolic age in Revelation. And when this revelation period closed, the period of miracle working had passed by also as a matter of course. Now the word revelation means to disclose something and divine revelation is God's gracious self-disclosure of Himself. This is something that God initiates, not us. God in His grace has condescended to speak to His creatures and reveal Himself. So I hope you can see that cessationism does not limit God in any sense or, or put Him in a box, as some would claim. No, this is His box. He designed it. He gets to sit in it and do whatever He wants with it. God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. What we're saying is that this is the way that God has chosen to act for the sake of His eternal purposes and glory. Friends, there is a God-ordained progress to redemptive revelation. There is a God-ordained progress to redemptive revelation that He Himself has attested by miraculous signs performed by his divinely commissioned miracle workers and that redemptive revelation has reached its climax, it's reached its fullness in the revelation of Jesus Christ and it has been given to us in the scriptures. Which brings us to the second reason why we think that certain gifts have ceased. Reason number two, prophecy and tongues are revelatory gifts. And the fullness of God's revelation has come to us in Christ. Now, there are two ways in which God reveals Himself. And and you all know this. There is, firstly, general revelation. So God making Himself known through creation and conscience. When we look at the wonders of creation, we can know something of God's power and His beauty and His creativity. Our conscience Uh, Gives us a sense of right and wrong. Romans 1, 18-19 says that all human beings unmistakably know God through creation. But they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. For which all human beings stand under God's judgment and wrath. Now the second way that God reveals himself is through his word. His special revelation. His speaking. And that is also recorded for us in the scriptures. And this is the revelation that has been attested through God's messengers through the ages. However, Scripture teaches us that God's revelation in redemptive history is progressive. It's progressive and it has reached its climax in Jesus. The fullness of God's revelation has come to us in the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So look with me at Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. This is what the writer says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the text says that long ago, in times past, God spoke at many times, which means He spoke in piecemeal. He told us more and more about Himself and His purposes to save sinners through His Son. God's revelation came to us in portions of incremental and progressive truth. So God spoke to Adam, if you remember. He spoke to Adam and told Him that the one who would come and slay the serpent and reverse the fall, He would come from the seed of the woman. He spoke to Abraham and He told Him that the Savior would come from His seed. He spoke to Jacob and told Him that the Savior would come from the tribe of Judah. He spoke to David and told Him that the Savior would be born in His house. God spoke to Micah and told Him that the Savior would be born at Bethlehem. He spoke to Isaiah and told him that the Savior would be born of a virgin. And then revelation ceased for 400 years. And after 400 years of revelatory silence, a weird-looking man, wearing weird-looking clothes, cried out, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In The fullness of time, God sent his son. The second person of the triune God, the living word, took on flesh, fulfilled the law, and died in the place of lawbreakers in order to reconcile sinners to God. This is what all of redemptive revelation builds up to. The message of Christ and him crucified. A friend, if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you today that you do not need to go on some spiritual quest to find God. No, He has found you. His saving revelation has come to you in this good news that I have just shared with you. This word of faith that we proclaim, it's near you. It's in your hearing, even today. So confess your sins. Turn away from them and put your trust in Jesus. He died in the place of sinners for all who would repent and believe in Him. Call on His name and you will be saved. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 verse 5 that this gospel was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Look at that text again, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. The text says, in times past, God spoke in many ways. That means he spoke through visions and dreams and audible voices. But in these last days, this time period between the first and second coming of Jesus, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Look at the text closely, note the parallels. Long ago is parallel to what? In these last days spoke to our fathers spoken to us through the prophets by his sons many times and many ways no, that phrase has no parallel you see in the Greek text there is no article the before the word son the text literally reads he has spoken to us in son the idea here is not merely what Jesus said but who he is. The revelation is a son revelation. Unlike the former revelation, which came through prophets, this one is a different class altogether, a different category, and it's tied up with who he is. He is the son. There is no parallel to many times and many ways because the fullness of revelation is complete and final. The God who reveals... The God of Revelation has Himself come. Jesus says in Revelation 22, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The British scholar F.F. Bruce wrote, The story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ. But there is no progression beyond Him. You see, the God who reveals Himself has spoken supremely and definitely through His Son. Herman Bavinck wrote, according to the scriptures, special revelation has been delivered in the form of a historical process, which reaches its end point in the person and work of Christ. Listen carefully. When Christ had appeared and returned again to heaven, Special revelation did not indeed come at once to an end. There was yet to follow the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and the extraordinary working of the powers and gifts through and under the guidance of the apostolate. The scriptures undoubtedly reckon all of this to the sphere of special revelation. And the continuance of this revelation was necessary to give abiding existence in the world to the special revelation which reaches its climax in Christ. Abiding existence, both in the word of scripture and in the life of the church. So truth and life, prophecy and miracle, word and deed, inspiration and regeneration go hand in hand in the completion of special revelation. But when the revelation of God in Christ had taken place and had become in scripture and church a constituent part of the cosmos, then another era began. Still baving. As before everything was a preparation for Christ, so afterward everything is to be a consequence of Christ. Then Christ was being framed into the head of His people, Now his people are being framed into the body of Christ. Then the scriptures were being produced, now they are being applied. New constituent elements of special revelation can no longer be added, for Christ has come, his work has been done, and his word is complete. Now, what does all of this have to do with tongues and prophecy? Well, remember what they are. They are spiritual revelatory gifts, not of general revelation, but of special revelation. Manifestations of the spirit for the common good, for the building up or edification of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. These gifts are given by our triune God. Same spirit, same Lord, same God who empowers them all and everyone. That's 1 Corinthians 124 to 6. We know that all the works of God are triune. This is the doctrine of the inseparable operations of the Trinity. And because of the inseparable operations of the Trinity, we understand that the gifts of prophecy and tongues serve the triune God's redemptive purposes for His church. Beloved, you know this. We looked at this, we considered this when we did 1 Corinthians 12. If we understand what the purposes of our triune God are in redemptive history, then we can understand why the miraculous manna ceased when the Israelites reached the promised land. Joshua 5.12 It wasn't the case that God could not do miracles anymore but that he wanted to bless his people in a different way by working through ordinary means as his people ate of the produce of the land. The manna had served its purpose in its time. It served the dual purpose of teaching the Israelites to trust in God's word for their sustenance in the wilderness, while also pointing to Christ, the living word, the bread from heaven in whose word we must trust for our spiritual sustenance. Prophecy and tongues are revelatory gifts that served God's redemptive purposes for his church at a unique period in redemptive history. Now, if you're new, I don't, want you, I don't want to assume that you know what I'm talking about, so let me define those terms for you. What is prophecy? Well, prophecy is the communication of God's authoritative and infallible revelation to His people. At times it is spontaneous, and at other times God speaks to His prophet, and His prophet later delivers His word to His people. A prophecy can be a declaration of God's word, a forthtelling. Or it can be a foretelling, a prediction of something to come. It's not something that men cook up on their own, but God speaks through His servants. 2 Peter 1.21 No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is why prophets in the Old Testament would preface their prophecies with the words, Thus saith the Lord some prophecies remember we're talking about special revelation some prophecies in the history of redemption were written down and some were not so in elisha's time he had an entire school of prophets we don't know what they said because they were not written down for us there were many things that jesus even said that were not written down for us john tells us in john 21 verse 25 that doesn't change the fact That prophecy is a revelatory gift given for the building up of the church. What are tongues? Well, the gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to communicate God's infallible revelation to the congregation in a language that was unknown and previously unlearned by the speaker, sometimes foreign to those who heard it, which is why God gave another gift, the gift of interpretation of tongues where either the speaker or someone else in the congregation would be able to supernaturally interpret what was spoken so that the church could understand the Word of God and be edified by the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, tongues are given as a sign. The gift of tongues was also a revelatory gift. Now, once a tongue is interpreted and you can understand God's revelation, what you're hearing is prophecy. Interpreted tongues are prophecies, which is why in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost, and they began speaking in tongues, they spoke God's word in languages, and they were understood by those who passed by, the text in Acts 2 says that they were declaring the mighty works of God. When that happened, Peter got up and said, this is the fulfillment of Joel 2:28 in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So not just on a select few, but on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. But they were not prophesying, were they? They were speaking in tongues. So why does Peter say this is a fulfillment? Why did he understand it to be a fulfillment because those tongues were understood. And when tongues are interpreted or understood, what you have is prophecy. Beloved, tongues and prophecy are revelatory gifts. And if they are revelatory gifts, then with the fullness of special revelation being disclosed to us in Christ and the completion of the New Testament scriptures, they have ceased. For no further special revelation can be given beyond Christ. Again, this does not mean that every revelatory word spoken in a tongue or through prophecy was inscripturated, but that all kinds of special revelation have found their consummation in Christ. All we need now for life and godliness, for doctrine and life, is found in the all-sufficient scriptures. At the end of the book of Revelation written around 90 to 95 AD, the Apostle John adds this warning. Revelation 22, verses 18 to 19. Listen to this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Towards the end of Paul's life in his his second letter to Timothy, you don't hear anything about the gifts of prophecy or tongues, but you do hear this, 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the good deposit. 2 Timothy 2.2, what you, he's addressing Timothy, the second generation of believers, what you have heard from me, the first generation of believers, In the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men. Third generation. Who will be able to teach others also. Fourth generation. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Where is that knowledge found? In his precious and very great promises in his written word. What's Paul's exhortation to Timothy before he dies? 2 Timothy 3.14 Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Beloved, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, not just for some, but for every good work. O. Palmer Robertson writes this, God's final word to His people is found in Jesus Christ and in the the inspired explanations of His person and work as preserved in the Old and New Covenant Scriptures. Friends, isn't this why we sing how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. You see our foundation is the inscripturated apostolic and prophetic word. And that brings us to our third point. The apostles and prophets were gifts that were given in the foundational years of the New Covenant Church and those years have passed. The apostles and prophets were gifts that were given in the foundational years of the church, and those years have passed. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21. After describing what Christ has accomplished for us through his work on the cross, Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Friends, the ministry of the apostles and the prophets were foundational. And when he says prophets there, I'm referring to the New Testament prophets. No one lays a foundation again and again. And so no one should expect those ministries to continue. And those are not just ministries, but gifts. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, He gave gifts to the church. What were those gifts? Look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, there are many, there are some groups who would argue that there are apostles today. Apostles who can do the same kind of thing that Paul and Peter did. Some charismatic groups, those who hold to rabid prosperity gospel teaching, movements like the NAR or New Apostolic Reformation. These are fringe groups that you must run away from. They believe that there are apostles today. But others, the more careful continuationists like Wayne Grudem and John Piper, I mention their names because they are more well-known. Well, they agree that there are no more apostles today. So at least one gift has ceased. We know this because of the qualifications of an apostle. According to Acts 1, 21-24, an apostle should be a witness to Jesus' resurrection and he should be chosen and commissioned by Jesus himself. And how do you recognize a true apostle? Well, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians twelve twelve: the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Friends, certain spiritual gifts Healings and miracles, tongues and prophecy ceased with the age of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. Those foundational years. These were the years that prophecy was being inscripturated and the canon of scripture is closed. It's now complete. And that brings us to our fourth point. Scripture is complete and it is sufficient. Scripture is complete and it is sufficient no one can add or take away from the bible the word canon simply means rule you see the church didn't meet in a dark room and then decide which books to put in and which books to throw out no the spirit indwelt new covenant saints simply recognized these inspired writings and what criteria helped them identify these writings let me give you three number one They had to have been written by an apostle or someone known to an apostle. And that means these writings were and had to be attested miraculously in the foundational years. Number two, those inspired writings had to have been in wide circulation because they were recognized. And number three, those writings were checked to see if they did not contradict earlier revelations. So those three criteria. And so even as early as AD 367, Athanasius of Alexandria, in a letter to the churches, mentions all 27 books of the New Testament as we know them today in the completed canon. This is significant, especially in light of all the spurious writings that were circulating around that time. Friends, if the gift of the apostles have ceased, and inscripturated prophecy associated with the apostolic age have ceased, then all the sign and revelatory gifts that attested and authenticated those apostles and prophets have also ceased. Now, our continuationist friends might argue, they might argue that there is not a single text that says that the gifts would cease. Well, there is certainly not a text that says the gift of apostles would cease, and yet they did. That is a reasonable and biblical inference to make. Beloved, a theological position is not developed by looking at a single text or the lack of one, but by looking at the entire corpus of revelation that has been once for all handed down to the saints. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1.6, is helpful for us on this point. It says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Friends, there is no single verse in the Bible that says that God is Trinity nor will you find a verse that says that there is one God and he eternally exists as three persons and yet he is one God that is a theological form- formulation and a glorious one I might add that has been faithfully derived by systematically putting together all that scripture tells us about God but what about first Corinthians 13 8 to 10 well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. Paul says, love never ends. You know what he's talking about. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Someone might say, well, this proves that the gift of prophecy and tongues will only pass away when the perfect comes, when believers will enter into the fullness of the age to come. But friends, we cannot jump to that conclusion simply because there are other truths we must consider. Remember what Paul's point in this passage is. Paul's point here is to simply contrast the permanence of love to the temporary nature of these gifts. If anything, we ought to see from this text is that these gifts are temporary. However, let's be fair to the text, it does seem to say that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So we cannot ignore that. So what do we do with it? Well, we must take all of Scripture into consideration because of what the rest of Scripture points to, especially with the cessation of the gifts of apostles. We should read this a little more carefully. So if I said to you, when the three-year term is completed, the elders will step down, this does not mean, nor should we presume, that no elder will step down before the end of three years, or that all of them will not step down before the end of three years. Or, let's look at scripture. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. We have to think theologically, don't we? We must examine these passages, we must look at their context, and we must put together Scripture as we see it revealed in all of the Bible. Friends, the point in 1 Corinthians 13.10 is not to tell us when the gifts will cease, but that they will cease. They are temporary. Love is permanent. That's the point. Number five. Here's the fifth reason. The nature of miracles, tongues, and prophecy, as described in the New Testament, are remarkably different than the miracles, tongues, and prophecies that are claimed today by continuationists. They're remarkably different, worlds apart. Now, a very important principle that you must consider while thinking about this doctrine is not to let experience determine the truth. Don't let experience determine the truth. The truth should shape our experience. We do not arrive at theological positions by polling the public. It's not how we do theology. So you cannot say, oh, there are so many charismatics claiming miracles, how could they not be true? Well, by that argument, we will have to then concede that billions of Roman Catholics who are claiming, claiming various miracles performed by dead saints must also be true. No, that's not how we do theology. First of all, many of these miracles claimed by charismatics are hearsay. And several others, when examined carefully, have proven to be false. For more reading on this, I would direct you to a couple of books, B.B. Warfield's Counterfeit Miracles, John MacArthur's Charismatic Chaos, another title, Strange Fire, and more recently, Costi Hinn's book, Defining Deception. Yes, you heard me right, Costi Hinn, Benny Hinn's nephew, who is a Reformed pastor. Imagine that. Defining Deception give you the inside scoop on all the deception that was going on. Friends, today's charismatic faith healers heal backaches and headaches. New Testament miracles were extraordinary, think about it, stilling the storm, walking on water, healing the blind, healing leprosy, making the lame walk, raising the dead, casting out demons, and all of them done instantly. The apostles like Peter and Paul and evangelists like Philip and Stephen in the New Testament, they did the kinds of healings and miracles that Jesus himself did. So listen to these passages, Acts 5, 12 and 15. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them presumably to be healed acts 6:8 stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people acts 8:13 philip did great signs and miracles in samaria he healed the lame and paralyzed he cast out evil spirits and this one's my favorite acts 8:39 after philip baptizes the ethiopian man we are told the spirit of the lord carried Philip away and the Enoch and the and the eunuch saw him no more But Philip found himself at Azotus Now that's the way to travel The Spirit of God carries you away to a different place None of all this give me your money so that I can buy myself a fancy jet nonsense Just ask the Spirit to transport you if you claim to have what the Apostles had or take Acts 19 verses 11 to 12 And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, but miracles have great evangelistic value. If we perform miracles, people will come to faith. No, they won't. Jesus said in Matthew 16 verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Throughout the Gospels, we see people chasing him for signs, but they don't believe in him. Do you remember that parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? The rich man is in hell, but Lazarus, the poor man, he's just chilling with Abraham. The rich man tells Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them. And he reasons that if someone comes back from the dead, if they see a miracle, they will be convinced, they will believe, they will turn over a new leaf. And you remember what Abraham says in the story, or rather what Jesus says? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Several days later, somebody did rise from the dead. Jesus. And they still didn't believe. See, Peter says, we are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. What about tongues? Well, friends, modern-day tongues are nothing like the phenomena described in the book of Acts or 1 Corinthians. Tongues were languages that could be interpreted and understood. They were not ecstatic speech. Ecstatic speech was only prevalent among pagan priests and priestesses. The modern phenomenon of tongue speaking consists of the repetition of random syllables that don't make any sense and are not interpreted. Typically what we see happening in charismatic churches is that people work themselves up into an emotional frenzy and euphoria with loud music. That Music is very important for them and they voice out random syllables. Now in the more cautious continuationist churches when they are practiced, the interpretations are usually some words of encouragements, which we may as well receive from scripture. Friends, this is not the biblical gifts of tongues. But we'll, look, we'll consider more about that next week. What about prophecies? Modern day prophecies as well. Prophecies as defined by continuationists are also different from what the New Testament described. In the 90s, Wayne Grudem was the first to redefine New Testament prophecy as something less authoritative than Old Testament prophecy. According to Grudem, New Testament congregational prophecy is something that the Holy Spirit brings to mind spontaneously and is fallible. It's mixed with human error. And so Grudem would say, for someone who believes that, they ought to say, well, I think the Lord might be saying this. I'm not interested in what you think the Lord might be saying. I want to know what the Lord is actually saying. This is problematic because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John 14, 17, his declarations are Christological. John 16, 13 to 15. Plus, when you read the New Testament, it is very clear that what Christ has accomplished is superior. The new covenant is superior to the old. Why would God give His new covenant church a prophetic gift that is inferior? Friends, there is no reason for redefining prophecy as a gift that includes both truth and error. Continuationists give two reasons why they believe this to be the case. Number one, they point to the fact that prophecies in the New Testament are tested. They are weighed, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 John 4 talks about testing prophecies. But this does not mean that New Testament prophecy is fallible. Even Old Testament prophecies were tested. We see that in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. The second reason they give is that the New Testament prophet, Agabus, in Acts 21, got it wrong. Well, the problem with that hypothesis is that it's simply not right, it's wrong. I have great respect for people like Wayne Grudem and John Piper and D.A. Carson, but I think they're wrong on this. Agabus says in Acts 21, verse 11, he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, just like an Old Testament prophet would say, Thus says the Lord, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He was speaking of what would happen to Paul. Now next week we'll look at this passage in detail as we look at 1 Corinthians 14, but Agabus' prophecy comes true. And notice how Paul recollects that incident in his own words. Acts 28, verse 17. He says, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, or Gentiles. That's what Agabus said. Agabus' prophecy was not a lesser, fallible type of prophecy. Furthermore, if New Testament prophecy was fallible, well, how do we know which parts of the New Testament scriptures are trustworthy and which are not? Continuationists also often describe the gift of prophecy as a word from the Spirit, or a leading, or impression, or urge, or intimation, intimation, or, or feeling of direction. Friends, this is very misleading language, and it's not at all helpful. This is not prophecy or some special revelatory gifts. Friends, human beings have feelings and impressions and intuitions and gut feelings all the time. But that's exactly what they are. We should not attribute this or call it a word from the Holy Spirit. No one denies that people have dreams or strong impressions or intuitions. A homicide detective with 30 years of experience can walk into a crime scene and instinctively know that something's not quite right. A mother can have a strong intuition that her child is hiding something from her or not telling the truth. We have all learned to pick up subtle clues by experience without even knowing that we're doing those things. That's not a spiritual gift. We live in God's world, and it's a wonderful world, and He is deeply and perfectly involved in it. All those things we should attribute to the providence of God. Put that in the providence folder, not in the special revelation folder. Friends, special revelation is when God speaks. It's when God speaks. Whether that is written or not written, that's irrelevant. When God speaks, that's special revelation. Contrast it with general revelation. And when God speaks, it is always true and authoritative. Revelation is when God speaks. Inspiration is the vehicle through which revelation is given. Men inspired by the Spirit spoke the very words of God. How does the Spirit work today? Well, He works by illumination. He takes what God has already revealed, the written word, and He illumines our minds. He gives us understanding and wisdom. He leads us and guides us by His written word. Luther, in his commentary on Psalm 119, he said this For God wants to give you His Spirit only through His external word. He meant the written word, the Bible. The saving and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit comes through His external word. It is not from within us. Not some impression to sanctify or build or guide, but it is an objective word. It is outside of ourselves and it is unchanging like the God we worship. Now, continuationists claim that such impressions do not pose a threat to the sufficiency of Scripture. Because they are not scripture quality revelation. But friends, the fact of the matter is they do. They do pose a threat to the sufficiency of scripture. Scripture is all we need for doctrine and life. If an impression doesn't add or supply help for doctrine, it is adding and supplying help for life. Otherwise, why else would you give it? In the words of John Owen, if private revelations agree with scripture, They are needless, and if they disagree, they are false. In conclusion, let me say two things. One, brothers, marvel at what Christ has done in sending us His indwelling Spirit. The one who sets us apart from unbelievers. The Holy Spirit, the one who regenerates us, the one who baptizes us into Christ, the one who illumines our minds, the one who seals us and assures us and convicts us and comforts us. The one who fills us and enables us. The one who gives us many grace gifts to minister to one another in love. So that God may be glorified through His church. So if you take away anything from this, marvel at what God has done in redemptive history for sinners. And number two. Remember what the aim of all sound doctrine is. The aim of all sound doctrine is love. And so when you have conversations with off-the-chart crazy charismatics... Or when you have conversations with cautious continuationists, be patient, be loving, be kind, especially if it is evident that you're talking with brothers and sisters. As Tom Schreiner so helpfully reminds us at the end of his book on spiritual gifts, Tom writes, if I have the right view of spiritual gifts but have not love, I am nothing. Brothers, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Let it be a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. Let it be your delight and your meditation all day long. God's all-sufficient grace is available to you in Christ and revealed to you in His Word. What else do you need? Where else can we go? Let's pray together. Father, help us by the power of Your Spirit to abide in the word of Christ. May we not be like children tossed and fro by the winds of new teachings, but may our feet be firmly planted on the rock. O Lord, would you guard your people from emotional intoxication, from vain imaginations, from the vain customs of our culture, And cause us to delight in your word. Shape and form us into a loving people, into the image of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.